Welcome to LOA Today. I'm Walt Deason. With me today is longtime listener, poet laureate, and Kaya Master, Anne-Marie Young. This is your Daily Dose of Happy. We are so happy you decided to join us today. Louis won't be able to join us this week, but we will anticipate him coming back next week. Uh, but uh, Emery and I were just chatting a little bit before we got started, and we were kind of talking about how great it is when you just make a decision in life and you just go for it. You just make the shift, you take the steps, and you just dive into it. Uh, and and then our our guest joined us, and we couldn't carry on the conversation. So you know, obviously, we'll we'll be getting to our guest in just a moment. Um, but uh, the thing I wanted to add to what we were talking about, Anne-Marie, is that it's so much easier to get excited and take the steps than it is to wait and perseverate and just fear and all that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Absolutely, because your brain can just go in so many directions. And how empowering is it to just take control exactly. of situations and just be able to move forward? Yeah, it's a wonderful feeling. It's a really great feeling. And we do have a special guest joining us today. Uh, I, I forgot to ask him again, Anne-Marie. I forgot to ask for the pronunciation, so I'm going to have to take a swing at it, see if I can get it right. Okay, I'm going to guess it's Rob Kresak? Close, yeah, it's Kretschak. It's Kretschak. No one no one gets it right. It's, uh, you're not alone, okay. So it's got the Eastern European, okay, yes. I got it. Yes, okay. uh-huh. it's a Serbian right. last name. Serbian, okay, very mm-hmm. good. Well, welcome to the show, Rob, and uh, we appreciate you being here. Um, your, your profile that I, uh, that I picked up on Podmatch where we met tells me that you are also a very positive personality. So I know you're going to fit in beautifully here. You, you advocate something called that you call the four day work week. And so I'm going to start there, uh, just because it's, well, it's a good place to start. It's one of the things that you're all about. Where did that come from? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you guys for having me. Really appreciate it and really grateful to be here today. Uh, four day work week. Well, I, I wish I could say that I came up with this concept, but of course I didn't. Um, but you know, I, I like to think that I think outside the box with things. And, you know, if you look at the history of the five day work week that we're in right now, that started in 1926 when Henry Ford had, uh, you know, people manufacturing stuff. And so what's sort of, sort of crazy to think about is the, the concept of the five day work week is virtual is almost a century old. Yeah, look at how much the world has changed in the last century. I mean, you know, we have computers now and so many other things, right? And so, right. you know, to me, it's, it's, it's about time for us to update our thinking a little bit in terms of how, you know, how we have to structure our work weeks. And, um, you know, um, Keynes, the famous economist predicted about a century ago that to, like now in today's world, we'd only be working about 15 hours a week based on, um, you know, increases in productivity over time. And obviously we're not working 15 hours a week. So there's some disconnect. And I, you know, I think it's time for us as a society to start thinking a little bit differently about what it means to work and what that can look like. And, you know, how could we actually accomplish more and less time and ultimately, you know, spend more time with our family or more time doing the things that we love in life. Like that really is for me, the goal is to give people more time doing those things. I love that. Keynesian economics may actually have something to do with that uh, longer work week, but that's another topic. We'll go there on another day. But I totally <laughs> agree. With, I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I think it's it, it's one of those things that I think it, we're actually evolving in the direction of what Keynes originally had in mind when he made that comment. I think I think it's inevitable because mm-hmm. what's what's what we're actually doing is something that really hasn't been done in a great way. It hasn't had a, a big um hasn't been, had a big shift. Let's put it that way. 
except over time. Over time, you can see the shift. But when you look incrementally from year to year or even decade to decade, you don't see the shift very much. But the shift is in valuing human, not just human labor, but human creativity more. Mm. And the more mm-hmm. that happens, all of a sudden, you know, time becomes valuable, really, really mm-hmm. valuable. Totally. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think, you know, as you look at our, right, as it, like, as you look at what's happened to, um, you know, the workforce, and I don't remember the numbers, but it's like 50 years ago, something like 20% of our time was, was spent on agriculture. And now it's like 2% or 1% or something, mm-hmm. right? Like we don't, you know, and so it's not surprising to me that uh, as we go forward, there's going to be more creative work. And, and I, but what, what that also means is, you know, for a lot of creative jobs, it's not a, you do this one thing and then you get this one output. It's uh Hey, you can do 20 different things and get this somewhat similar output. And, you know, doing those 20 different things differently than someone else isn't good or bad. It's just means that you're working differently and sometimes better or smarter. And so I, I think that there's a lot of room for improvements in the way that we do creative jobs, you know, with the four day work week, for instance. And how did it come about for you? I mean, people don't generally just you know, stand up and say, well, I'm going to start advocating the four day work week because it just occurred to me. Yeah, well, here's what's happening to the world. And I've spent the last four years reading uh, over 100 books and 2000 articles and studies to truly understand the intersection of psychology, humanity and technology. And what's happening is, uh, at least in the United States, we are the most stressed out and burned out we have ever been as a society. But we're also the most stressed and burned out relative to other countries in the world. And so we're kind of, you know, the average U.S. worker is essentially reaching this breaking point where we can't we, we can't work anymore because we're, 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 our bodies and minds don't allow it. And so I think the answer to that for a lot of people is the four day work week. And, um, you know, so if you can dramatically reduce stress and reduce burnout and, you know, get paid the same and spend more time with people that you care about, I mean, isn't that a win on all fronts? Like everybody's winning. I like the idea. I like the spirit behind that. Emery, you don't have any of that kind of burnout going over there in the UK, do you? I mean, that, that's just in the US, right? Oh, no, no. I'd say it's definitely going on over here. I think, <laughs> I think, um, I think I'm feeling it. No, I think aspects of the pandemic haven't, <laughs> aspects of the pandemic haven't helped. I think where people are now, their home and their work lives are, are together and it's, I just think there's less break away and I think people the computers there you can still work I just see people online at every single hour of the day um I'm quite strict with how I am with it um but I know people who just are exhausted and I can see a lot of stressed people just cracking just cracking to, to what extent do you think the online aspect is contributing to that I just think where people have got the computers at home now and they'll be, oh, I've just got to get this done, and then I'll be in a better situation for tomorrow. And um, just people being, you can see people in the chat, well, you know, if you've got like Zoom chat, you can see who's online. And you're just more and more people at silly times of the day and the night are online. What do you think that adds up to? I think that adds up to people just feeling they have to give more. I think it's people not creating their own boundaries. Mm. Um, 
Um, because I quite say I haven't capacity to do extra on top of what I do. I might do a couple of hours a week, but I won't go hell for leather because my family's my priority and other things are my priority. So I think other people just, I think they feel they've just, they've got more work and people want to give you more work. Maybe that, like you said, Rob, maybe more people, it jobs are getting easier. So they're throwing more at you. Hmm. And I think that's a, a that's a big case. People just, and especially for people who who want to achieve, they'll take more on, and then eventually those people just feel demoralised. I'm seeing what with people that I know, I'm seeing people who want to achieve, want to do more, and they get those are the people who do the stuff, and then they'll get bombarded with the extra work. Yeah, that, that's actually been going on since pre-internet, I believe. But I think you're right. The mm-hmm. internet has kind of accelerated that trend quite a bit. And it, it, it is a dangerous trend because, I mean, well, Rob, I'm going to let you address this part because you're all about the four-day week. But um, I think the danger with the four-day week is you know, a company saying, yeah, we're, we're going to go to a four-day week, but we're going to pile even more work on you. Yeah, so um, t- totally a fair, you know, uh, concern, right? And um, I just want to be clear that when I talk about the four day work week for, for me or like what I would do with a company, it's four eight hour days, not four 10 hour days. So you do, you know, every person in the company truly gets a day of time back. But of course, and you know, as you just said, the number one question that I get when I talk to a CEO is, well, Rob, how can I possibly do five, you know, five days of work in four days when I can't even do the work in five days right now, you know? <laughs> and, um, like here's kind of what's happening to to the world, and 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 this might illustrate it a little bit differently for people. So, uh, the average white collar worker sends and receives 126 emails per day. If it takes you two minutes per email, that's right around half of your day, right there, almost exactly four hours. Then, if you're in meetings for two hours a day, and some people are more or less depending on your position, but two hours a day for meetings, then you only have two hours left in an eight-hour day to actually do your job. You know. And for the average person, that's not, that's not possible, right? Or not very possible. And so then they rush or they, they're very stressed out to, to try to get the job done in that short amount of time. And then they are very, very stressed out. And so by cutting down on the number of emails that you send or the number of unnecessary meetings you have, it frees up your time to do what you were hired to do, which is your job. So is that possible? I mean, I'm sure there are people who are office workers who are saying, oh, boy, if I only had to answer five emails a day, that would be wonderful. Yeah, I mean, so I actually had a a client who is running for governor of Colorado. So she's a super busy politician. And um, she came to me and said, hey, like, I'm really burned out from my campaign. This is really difficult to do. You know, I can't manage all this stuff. And so she took my initial client survey and then she worked with me for three hours. And I mean, we did a lot of uh, interventions with her and changed a lot of things about how she communicated and used her technology. But what we found is that when we measured her screen time on her iPhone, we I was able to help her save over 40 hours per week of time, over 40 hours per week of screen time, an entire work week's worth of time. And so if I can have one person save 40 hours a week, I'm very confident that I can save the average person eight. It just takes uh, it just takes a little outside of the box thinking and some willingness to do something differently. So I think you got to give us an example because that, that's a pretty you know mind bending stat <laughs> you just threw out there. Yeah. Um, well, here's something very simple that takes ten seconds and that everybody could do while they're listening to this. So on the iPhone, there's a setting called Raise to Wake. 
Um, and there's a very similar one on Android. It's just called something slightly different. But basically, when this uh, feature is enabled, and it is by default on almost all iPhones, um, your phone screen will turn on when you physically move the phone. So if you disable Raise to Wake and turn it off, then not only does it not move, the, the screen doesn't um, turn on, but you have to double tap it or press the power button to turn, to turn on the display. So this does a couple of things. The first one is it saves battery life. But the second thing is when you move your phone and the display turns on, well, what do we do automatically? As humans, we just kind of look at the phone because there's the stimulus in front of us, right? And so when you look yeah. at your phone and your phone screen, they're like, oh, oh, wait, what notification do I have? What, who wants to get a hold of me? Blah, blah, blah. And so you're way more tempted to get sucked into your phone when the feature is turned on. So when you turn off Raise to Wake, it uh, is, makes it way less likely that you get sucked into your phone. And when I, for instance, uh, disabled that feature because I track my screen time very carefully, it saved me almost two hours per week of screen time from one single thing. So that to me is like, I mean, I don't know. Do you want two hours every week back? I would just to, just to uh, disable one feature on my phone. And yet I imagine that whatever that notification was for an email or a text or whatever it might have been, it still needed to be addressed at some point. So where does the exact savings come in? Yeah. So what happens is when, when we're, um, when we're caught, so the average person checks their email and Slack inboxes or messaging inboxes, we'll say once every six minutes. And so think about if, if this was physical mail, how ridiculous this would be. Let's say, um, you would get up and go to the mailbox and walk to the mailbox every six minutes. I know you wouldn't really I, do I, that. I, I got to actually interrupt you for a second here. <laughs> Is this really true? People are checking their messages every six minutes? Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, people are lucky if I check my phone like three times a day. So that's why I'm really wondering. <laughs> that's a, well, you're, you're, Walt, you're in the, the very small minority and you're already way ahead of the game then. You're oh, way, okay. <laughs> way ahead of the game. And I mean, when they're at a computer as well, not just on their phone, but like when you're, you know, when you're in like your email on your computer, people oh, okay. are checking it once every six minutes. Six minutes. Um, wow. But, but that's, that's awesome. I think, I think, I, say, I think at work, I get a message every one to six minutes. So I think I have no choice but to <laughs> All check right. it. Okay. Right. But, but then we see what happens then, Amory is, and, and you're like everyone else, right? That creates some pressure for you to want to, to answer those emails, right? It, it, or even if it's not, explicitly stated by the email sender, you still kind of feel this pressure to like be checking your inbox then to kind of triage the emails as they come in. Do you agree? Yeah. It's, yeah. And so oh, like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so then when you're constantly checking your email every six minutes, uh, you know, you're really not, you, you, people like underestimate how much time that's taking. It's, it's a, it's a massive amount of time. It's just, you know, 10 seconds here, 30 seconds there, 40 seconds there, but aggregated together in a day, it's hours a day. Which is ironic because email was supposed to actually make our time more efficient, not less efficient. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So we, that's, and that's what's kind of happened, right? Is email is a free communication medium, like a lot of them, right? We don't, mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's no incremental cost in general for me to send an email. And so I just, you know, I, I, I think that there's no cost, but the true cost is my time mm -hmm. that I, it's just hard to factor into for one email. Do you think that we spend too much time on text driven communications? I, I, I say that because I think we spend too much time on text driven communications. Yeah. So here's, so here's kind of, this is a huge part of my thesis. We'll say for humans first. And this is why I, 
um, believe that uh, what is contributing to the the loneliness epidemic in the world. So just as a way of um, you know way of thinking about things. So we are the most connected we've ever been in the in the world, but we also have the highest loneliness, right? And I'm and I'm trying to like figure out why is that. And so it's pretty ironic. It is ironic, right? Like what's like what's happening, right? So here's what I believe is happening. So when, like, let's say, Walt, for instance, you and I were having this conversation in person and I gave you a pat on the back, right? Like I was saying, like, hey, you know, I really appreciate everything. So when you get warm human touch from another person like that, it releases two chemicals in your brain, serotonin and oxytocin. Mm -hmm. These are two chemicals that make you feel loved and appreciated and cared for and supported. And it's those chemicals are released the most when we have warm human touch with other people. Well, as we gravitate toward uh, away from warm human touch to digital communication like texting, email, direct messages on social media, the amount of serotonin and oxytocin released are less and less and sometimes almost none. Mm -hmm. And so that is why, you know, all these communications are going more digital. We're now experiencing less serotonin and oxytocin from our relationships, which makes us feel less supported and loved and cared for. And that's contributing to our feelings of loneliness. That's what uh, I really believe uh, is happening today. I, I think that's a very valid point and very accurate. Something else that comes to my mind is distance. And by distance, I mean how far does the electronic communication have to travel? And the reason I think about that, is, now th this is a little bit of a stereotype, so forgive the stereotype, but uh, it, it's a classic example of you know the five teenagers who are texting to each other while they're in the same room. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like, well, have you ever thought of you know talking? Talking? Are you kidding? No. Join the 21st century. Yeah. <laughs> Anne-Marie, do you experience that in the UK as well? People sitting around, you know, in a circle, texting each other in the same circle? Uh, I've, uh, I don't know. I've not really noticed it. But what I have noticed in the workplace is everybody is direct messages. And I'm, I'm from one that's literally rather than send emails back and forth, back and forth. I will go, have you got two minutes? And I'll, I'll give people a ring. So I think people check my messages going, have you got two minutes? Because I will have that face-to-face -face interaction because I just think it saves so much time back and forth on the emails. Um, totally I can great. see, I can see, um, younger people are constantly on the phone. Like my daughter, I don't let her have her phone all the time. Um, she's only 10, but she, she would literally be on it all the time and her friends around the corner, whereas when I was a kid, it would be, would go and meet and play at the park or something. So I do see it changing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Anne-Marie, I, I commend you for wanting to have those, even a brief face-to-face -face conversation over instead of messaging back and forth a million times. And I wish that I could convince everyone to do what you're doing because that it really it, 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 people don't realize it is actually way faster because you can communicate three times more quickly when you're speaking than when you're right. typing for the average person. And so um, and the there's a good reason for that, because there's more data coming across than just the words. Yes. Right. Those, yeah. That, yeah. that context makes all the difference in the world in terms of shortening the conversation. It does. And there's so much more empathy that way. I think, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that I think is, um, you know, causing, you know, people to make these nasty comments online, regardless of what it is, whether it's politically related or something else is there's no empathy, right? Like if I made a nasty comment, Walt, on your Facebook page, I wouldn't see the look of pain or anger or hurt or whatever on your face when you read it. 
And yeah. but if I you wouldn't see it for person, a while either, because I'd probably take three days to go look at the thing <laughs> in the first place. But I get your point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, but like, so my rule of thumb is I only write online publicly what I would say to someone's face, you know, like in person. And if I don't feel like I would say it to their face, then I I don't write it. But there's also the body language. There's the there's the sound of the voice. There's the tonality. I mean, that that yes. that's what I love about what you're doing, Anne Marie. You say, All right, let's get on the phone and talk. Because more information is being transmitted than just the words. And, and that information, it, God, it can make all the difference in the world. I think probably, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't have any studies to say this is true. Rob, you may have studies on this. I don't know. But I, my guess is that a large chunk of the time that gets spent on email or other forms of text communication is wasted time because people are misunderstanding each other. So they're trying to confirm, is this what you meant? What maybe, maybe you were saying this, well, what you really should have said is this, you know, all this other crap like that. When, if they were just talking to each other, they'd know. Yeah, I do. I, well, I, I for sure have a, a, a study related to that. So humans have a negativity bias, right? Like as a, and it's a survival mechanism. Yeah. And so what, what people also don't realize is when we communicate digitally, like text, email, whatever, um, we generally interpret that information way more negatively than if the exact same information had been said audio, you know, audibly, like in a, in a voice, you know, in a voice call or in a zoom call or obviously in person. And so, so then if you think about that, because again, most communication is now going digitally, we have this negative slant toward every person we're communicating with because we just automatically negatively interpret written communication. And, And again, like, my my goal with humans first is to uh, you know uh, generate some awareness and uh, educate people on these things so that they can determine if they want to you know change the way that they're doing something or maybe not but at least then they have the awareness to know hey like instead of me sending this text to my boss about xyz i should just talk to him in my next one-on-one meeting and that's going to be a way more effective way to discuss that issue and it probably won't come across as negative for me that to me is like a meaningful change in, in communication and in your dynamic with your boss. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And I think also it depends on what the relationship is. Like for instance, Anne Marie and I will often communicate uh, digitally, but we also know what our context is. We're, right. we're, we're good friends. We're there for each other. There, you know, there've been times where uh, uh, very recently I needed some support and she was there to give me support. And so if I was getting a text message or an email from her, I could interpret that message in the context of that relationship. Like I know Anne Marie's got my back. Well, that's going to be an entirely different interpretation than if she's somebody working in the next department over who could be taking time away from the thing that I'm trying to do. Now, all of a sudden I can see myself getting defensive really easily with the same person just Mm -hmm. because the context is different. Absolutely. Do you agree with that, Anne Marie? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think um, I had a new boss start while we were in lockdown so never actually met face to face and there mm. was a lot of breakdown in communication that just because she didn't know me I didn't know her she didn't trust me I didn't trust her straight away and we didn't build that relationship because it wasn't face to face that everything was written and everything's interpreted in a different way so, like you say, you tend to read these things going, oh, what's what's that about? Rather than actually, she's just trying to help me. And now that we all meet up together, you know, I love working for her. Yeah. That that brings me to another interesting thought is, you know, I, I and I get why, you know, during the pandemic, people work remotely and, you know, there's still remote 
a lot of remote work. And again, I, I do think that a, a lot of that is good. But if you have a 100% remote company, I think a lot about, you know, if I joined that company as an employee and I never met a single person face to face, you know, you, you use an interesting word, Emory, trust. I'm not sure. And even if the people were good, I'm just not sure that I could trust them exactly to the same degree as if I had seen them or met them in person, even after I'd worked there a long time. I'm just curious what you guys think about that. I think it depends on what kind of relationship you've built. I mean, Anne-Marie and I have never met each other in person. Oh, interesting. She's one of my closest friends. Wow. That's but super they, cool. But that's the context. <laughs> well, first of all, we do get to interact like this. We see each other on screen, you know, yeah. so we mm -hmm. have that. And all of our interactions are mutually supportive. We're not in mm -hmm. competition on anything. Mm -hmm. No, we're not, we're, it, we're, there's no competition. And I, by competition, I don't mean necessarily that we're, you know, in business going after the same account or something like that. Right. right. E even in a business environment if, with, with colleagues, you know, one person is working on, on division X, the other one's in division Y, and they have different interests because they're working in different divisions. So there's going to be a competition of energy and of time just because mm -hmm. of the different interests that are involved. Whereas with Anne Marie, I, we're always just talking about stuff here on, on LOA today. That is stuff that we, you know, we have a mutual interest in. We, we're, we're passionate about it. We have fun with it. It's an entirely different experience from somebody who's in that kind of office, uh, office politics situation. We'll call it that. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. I mean, I can see both sides because I have a lot of, I would say a lot of my closest friends I've never met because they're all in America or scattered around the world. Um, and it's just people I have, I've met who have similar interests. So again, you know, kind of, you know your tribe um but then at work i i wouldn't say i think because i i'm very much into communication and i will have that phone call i will just let's talk rather than email back and forth or message back and forth let's have that conversation um but then i was think trying to think as you were talking like has it affected me and then i just think there's for example there's there's people at work i've never met and i'd love to have a conversation with but i can't get hold of them and they're very elusive and that does, that, that, that does make it very tricky to build a relationship. And you do have that distrust. Like, what, why can't I get hold of this person? Are they at their desk? What are they doing? Why won't they talk to me? Why won't they engage? So, and I think when you're face to face, you can walk up to somebody's desk or you can just catch that body language if they don't want to talk to you. Do you know what I mean? I, I think, I think being remote has lost a lot of elements. Yeah, we, need, we, we need body language emoticons. We have facial emoticons, but there aren't any body language. Well, there are a few of them, but there aren't enough of them, I don't think. Oh, that's a great point, Walt. I like that. That's body language emoticons. <laughs> I mean, I you think, need emoticons for turning your shoulder away, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That, this is the next million-dollar idea. I love it. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, five entrepreneurs are, are calling their VCs saying, hey, I got a great idea for you. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think we're really touching on something very, very critical here. I mean, you, I love that you're bringing this out in what you advocate and what you teach. I, I think it, the idea of connection needs to be taken to the next level. Because mm. right now, for the most part, with most people, connection is you have just made a connection. That's about it. There, there's not a lot of context for most people where connection is concerned. But what we're talking about is how vital that context is. And if you don't take it into account, the quality 
of that connection is going to suffer. But if you do take it into account, the quality of that connection is going to be enhanced multiple times over. Yeah, I mean, I, I really, really resonate with what you said, Walt. And um, one of the things that I really, um, you know, I think is super meaningful to me anyway is uh, the longest running study on happiness is from Harvard. And it's almost 80 years long. They followed these people for their nearly their entire life. And um, what they found is that, you know, basically I'll summarize the study that the number one determinant of your happiness is the quality of your relationships in your entire life. Not, not the quantity, not how many, uh, not, not definitely not how much money you have or anything like that is the quality of your relationships. And so even if you have two or three good friends and you get to spend a lot of time with them, you know, that still can be a very happy and meaningful life, which really to me can. is very, I really like that. Well, speaking of Harvard, there's also another study that came out of Harvard, not the 80-year-old one. I think I know about that one. But there's another one that was done by one of the positive psychology gurus, Sean Aker, mm. um, when he was at Harvard. And in that study, he found he, he, he was trying to identify ways to help Harvard students who are extremely overworked, overstressed students find some way to help assure them that if they do X, Y, and Z, they'll be successful. They're going to achieve that success that they're so fearful that they're not going to get to. And so he put this long survey together and he couldn't correlate anything except for a question that he threw on at the last second. And the question was about social connections. And the, the correlation that he found was that it was a, a, looking at the social connections was 70% accurate and being predictive of somebody's future success in whatever it is they were trying to succeed at. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. fascinating. And, and I still can't believe Sean hasn't publicized that. The only place I've ever heard him talk about that was on a PBS special. And it was in, in uh, a special where he was promoting his book, The Happiness Advantage. It isn't even in his book. The only place you can find it is in an addendum on this special. That's the only place he's ever mentioned it. Come on. Seriously? <laughs> I can't. I've looked for it online. I can't find it anywhere. That's the only resource I've been able to find that references it. But my God, what a result. 70%. And as he points out, the correlation between smoking cigarettes and getting cancer is just 44%. I mean, it, this is a huge correlation. No way. That's amazing. I've, I've yeah. not ever heard that. I appreciate you sharing that with me. Yeah. Well, that's great. well, nobody else has either. That's why I keep sharing it to let people know because people got to know this thing. This is great. It's <laughs> <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. Can you imagine what would how this would affect all kinds of relationships, not just business relationships? If people understood just how important the depth and breadth of their social connections really were. I, I, that's what I'm trying to show people. I really, I mean, that resonates so much with me. I really, I really appreciate you sharing that. That's awesome. Now, now I have a personal theory. I'm kind of curious to know what your personal take is on my personal theory. That's about as personal as we get. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but my take is that if, if you really want to make yourself close to 100% predictive of, of your own success or failure, you need to look at two factors. The first one being the social connection. That's the big one. But I think the other 30% is in your self-confidence. You know, oh, my God. So that's super interesting you say that. And, Walton, you know, I've actually spent an inordinate amount of time thinking about this because I believe that uh, almost everything positive in life comes from having good self-confidence. Because think about it. So if, if, if we assume that you're the social connection part first, the first part is true, right? 
Well, what allows you to have good social connections? Generally, it's comfortability and good self-esteem with you, you know, with yourself. And mm. so, you know, because if you can't take care of your own needs or you're not confident in yourself or your own stability or security, you're not going to look toward other people because you can't even take care of your own crap, you know? Right. And so I really, that's why I truly, and it, so if we believe that social connections are the thing that gives us the most joy and the most meaning in life and the most happiness and that self-esteem is an, as an input of those uh, social connections, then really it's having a strong sense of self and a true and a high self-esteem is what actually really truly leads us to have the, the best life. And that matches up perfectly with my experience doing the show. I've, I've been doing the show for 10 years and interviewing all the people who've come through. I have so many amazing people. Every single one of them had high levels of self-confidence without wow. exception. Every single one of them. So yes, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. I resonate with it entirely. You know, my insides are going vibrate, vibrate, vibrate. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, it, it is to me, it's just so freaking obvious. <laughs> it is. And, but here's, but here's, um, again, something that I just, I really want to like, uh, educate people on, I guess, or bring awareness to. So if you think about, um, your body, and your mind, you know, they're obviously connected. And uh, if you think about, uh, like, let's just say humans are basically a really intelligent animal, right? Like, mm -hmm. that's really what we are. Is we're just super smart animals. And any animal or organism basically functions in one of two ways. They're either in a positive emotional state, which means that they are, like, gravitating toward something or someone that could, um, you know, make their situation better or they're in a negative emotional state and they're, uh, you know, avoiding something that could cause pain or kill them or, you know, make them not mm. live. Right. So positive emotional state or negative emotional state. And generally we're in one of the two, you know, it's, it's, and yes, there's some like neutral area, but on the whole, we're in one of the two. Well, my theory, uh, and again, like this is very hard to prove, but my theory is that a lot of the ways that we are using technology today, is actually putting us in a very highly negative emotional state on a day-to-day -day and sometimes minute-to-minute -minute basis. And it's because of the different technologies we're using and how we're using them that, you know, is, is, is putting us into this negative emotional state. And so I think when we are in this negative emotional state a lot of the time, it doesn't allow us to have the self-esteem or self-confidence that we would otherwise. And that's significantly negatively contributing to our mental health and our self-esteem and our self-worth. I love that. So I have a follow-up question on that. Yeah. My follow-up is chicken or egg? <laughs> In other words, yeah. is it the the negativity that's creating the lack of self-esteem? Is it the self-esteem that's creating the lack of activity? Uh, lack, lack, you know, the, the negativity? Where Where's the mix here, do you think? Yeah, that's a – I love this question. Um, I think it is more causal by technology than – the, so I think I think technology is causing more than the other way around. Um, and he, but 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 to give you a, an example, so here's an example, right? So let's say uh, you, you you have a bad day at work and you go home, and because of this bad day at work, you surf on social media for two hours. The average person in America, by the way, search is on social media for two hours and fourteen minutes a day. So that's even though that sounds like a lot, that's not a lot at all. Uh, and if you're younger, it's probably way more than two hours a day. 
So yeah, I'm, I'm want, at the other end. I'm counterbalancing is what I'm doing. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. So you're, you know, you're on social media for t- the two hours and what's happening during that time is you don't realize it, but there's all these, all these things that are happening. So like you're probably using social media as a coping mechanism to deal with your bad day. But what you don't realize is that it's actually putting you into an even more negative state because of all these other things that we don't need to get into. And so that is a scenario where, you know, for instance, you, you think, you know, it is kind of a chicken and egg scenario, but there, I think that your negative emotional state propels you to use technology even more negatively, even though you don't think that or realize that it's kind of crazy. Now, now we're, we're leading in. Emery knows where I'm going here. I'm sure, but we're now leaning into one of my favorite topic areas because okay. one of the things that I have learned mainly through doing this podcast, by the way, I'll just give you the little short version about why I started the podcast. Yeah. Please. I started this in 2012 because the 2008 financial crisis wiped out my business, wiped out my my wife's business. We were basically oh, devoid of income. And by 2012, we were deep in debt. The savings was gone. We're trying to figure out how to survive all this other kind of stuff. Couldn't afford yeah. to hire a coach. So I know I'll start a podcast. I'll bring experts on. They can teach me for free and I can actually get through all this stuff, which worked beautifully. Uh, wow. But the point is that, what I've learned since then is that we have the capability to think about our experiences differently from the way we would do so by default. Yes. We, we, we have the ability to decide, okay, I am encountering this negative thing that I don't like so much. How am I going to respond to it? We kind of forget that. We, we, we kind of get into a rut that says, well, if, if the negative thing is this, then my response has to be this other negative response. But that's not true. It turns out we actually can take control of that. And so that's why what I want to bring up with you, you know, what do you think about the ability of the human being to learn a skill to change the way they're thinking about a negative stimulus so that it no longer treats them or no, no longer affects them in a negative way? I love your, that's a very great, that's a great thought, Walt. And so a couple of different things. First of all, I have ADHD. And so it's very difficult for me to focus on something. And I say that because I've tried to, med- you know, get into meditation for many years. And I, I just like didn't think I could do it or, you know, that was that's a kind of a BS excuse. I just didn't put forth enough effort. But now that I'm doing it right regularly, and I'm not not every day, but maybe every other day, um, I totally see the value in what you're saying. And I, I tr- very much believe that we do have this, you know, there's a period of time where there's a stimulus. And then we can, there's a space, a time where we can choose to react differently and then we do react. But here's what I think is happening is because for instance, let's again, just take Facebook and Facebook, there are tens of thousands of engineers plus supercomputers that are engineering that product to be as addictive as possible and take as much of your time as attention as possible. And so even if you have amazing self-control or you are an incredible meditator, they have tens of thousands of people plus supercomputers trying to n- negate that and get you to stay on the platform and react a certain way. Yeah, they and want so you to how, push those buttons every single time. Right. And so how is it possible that one human brain could resist the power of tens of thousands of engineers plus supercomputers? And the answer is you can't. Like that's an unfair fight for anyone, even the person with the highest uh, self-control in the world, that's still a very hard fight. So what do you think uh, the solution is? Well, the solution is what I'm hoping I can help people with is to have some, I call the area of study that I'm in technology mindfulness. And it's 
to have some awareness of the ways that technology is impacting your life so that you can decide if you want to change your behavior or not. And to me, part of that is making a decision on things like how much time do I actually want to spend on social media? Right. And, well, and the way that I kind of describe it is a lot of the things that I help people with are designed to structure your technology use differently instead of uh, rely on willpower. Because if you rely on willpower, it's you know, like we just discussed, it's not very helpful. Um, Anne-Marie, I'm just curious, by the way, what you think of, you know, the stuff that we've been chatting about, because I just like to get, I always <laughs> like to get other opinions about, you know, because I know that my, some of my, um, we'll just say my theories can be very uh, out of the box, <laughs> we'll just say. Oh, we love those. <laughs> Don't worry about that. We love yeah. out of the box theories. As, the farther out, the better. <laughs> Um, for me, I can easily lose a couple of hours just on social media without even realizing. So I can see how you just like your brain goes. And then I can see how that affects me on a day to day level. If, you know, just if you, if you run it before you go to bed and how my brain doesn't switch off those. And I know at work, if I really don't want to do a job, I've had to retrain my mind because I would procrastinate. I would just like, I'll just take a quick look at my phone because I don't want to do that. And I literally I'll leave it in another room. So and I focus on how I'm gonna feel after I've done it and then it empowers me to do what I've got to do. So I've kind of had to retrain myself because I could easily get lost in that social media thing. So I, I can see that. I really like what you just said. I think about how I'm going to feel afterward and then that helps me do something. I've not I've not heard someone say something quite like that. That's really cool. I if you don't mind, I'd like to use that with some of my clients because I think that that's a powerful cool. way of thinking about things if you're okay with that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, no problem. Th th that to me is, is what I was trying to address earlier. The idea that we get to choose what our response is going mm. to be. She's choosing in advance what her response is going to be before mm -hmm. she's even gotten onto the channel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> before she's even heard what they're going to say, she's chosen what her response is going to be. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, one of the things that I, uh, th the psychology of procrastination is super interesting. Um, so what happens is when we think of a task, like let's say it's a plan my wife and I got married about a year ago. So let's think it's say it's planning a wedding, right? We think of the task of planning the wedding in its entirety. And obviously that's like, <laughs> there's so many things that go into that, right? So we think of this task. Oh my God, I have to plan my wedding. It becomes, so you think of all the tasks, you're like, oh my God, that is, it's just so many things. It becomes overwhelming. And then humans mm -hmm. experience overwhelm as a loss of control. And mm -hmm. when we, and we experience something that's a loss of control as a threat. So it sounds weird, but thinking about this, you know, overwhelming task actually puts our body into this fight or flight mode, uh, activates our sympathetic nervous system, our fight or flight system. And then we want to do something and that makes us uncomfortable, like, cause we're kind of going into this emergency mode. Right. And, um, and so in order to get rid of that uncomfortability, we just do something simple, like check social media or fold the laundry or whatever else is easy in the moment. <laughs> and then that makes us feel slightly less uncomfortable. And <laughs> that's why we procrastinate. And so what, one of the things that I've tried to do to my, for myself is, to just take the first step, whatever it is, right? Even if it's just open up the Word document for like open up a blank Word document to start writing a something, then that makes the rest of the task a lot easier. And then there's not this feeling of overwhelm anymore. By the way, folding the laundry is probably a very good strategy to follow when you're trying to deal with what you're going to do with the electronic media. I'm just saying it's a, it's a, it's a nice way to distract your mind. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, there's a lot of, yes, a lot of things like that to do that distract. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's really what we, we talk about a lot here on the show. And you're contributing to that conversation, that ongoing conversation. We talk about adding tools to our tool chest or to our tool belt. And, and you're talking yes. about adding some ta- some tools that are actually tied to how we use the technology. And that's cool. I love that. Yeah, that's the whole thing. And you said an interesting word, Walt, is tool. And the way that I look at all technology is as a tool. And, mm-hmm. you know, just like a hammer can be used to, for things that help or hurt, um, technology can be used the same way. And so it's not the tool itself that's bad. It's how you use it. And so, right. again, if I can help people use technology as a tool that makes their life better and not makes it worse, like that to me is the whole point of my company. And that's what I'm here to help people with. I, I want to ask one more question along the same line, because I've been, I've been coming at this from a, a variety of different angles and every one of them, you're just, you're handling beautifully. You know, have, have you actually been to played on this before? I think you have, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things I want to bring out is uh, Amory mentioned the value of deciding what her desired outcome is before she does something. We call that prepaving. One of the many ways that we can prepave is to prepave not just what the outcome is going to be or even what our uh, emotional response is going to be, but what attention we want to give our attention to, what we want to give our attention to. Uh, because we have a tendency, and, and you alluded to it earlier when you referred to the, the negative nature of our society, we have a strong tendency to give a lot of attention to stuff we don't like. Yeah. It's part of the, that's part of the world that we live in. We live in a world, we, we call it a world of polarity or, or contrast here on the show. And in that world of polarity and contrast, we, we, we came here to, I mean, we like the drama. Let's be honest. You know, <laughs> we may point to the drama queens, but there aren't a whole lot of people who don't like drama on this planet. That's, that's what they look at when they're looking at their entertainment. It's all about the drama. You know, so they love the drama. They just don't necessarily want to be experiencing it for their own lives, but they still want to watch it. They still want to see it. They still want to engage in it. And yet it's all about behaviors and experiences and events that they don't really like all that much. So the yeah. question I want, the question I want to raise is, do you think there's value in giving more of your attention to what you actually enjoy and like and feel good about in your life and less attention to the negative? Oh, I mean, I did. Oh, this is so great, Walt. So. Um, you know, there's a, there's a study that, um, where, where people watched five minutes of news in the morning, a news show, not a, I don't know, like not reading something, but a news, like a TV show, right? Good morning, five America minutes. Yeah. 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 And so one group, uh, watched five minutes of positive news. The other group watched five minutes of negative news. <laughs> and what they found is that the group that watched the negative news was 27% more likely eight hours later to rate their day as negative. Wow. So like basically five minutes of negative news can make, it can ruin your whole day. Mm. And, you know, think about how many people are doing that. There's millions of tens of maybe hundreds of millions of people around the world doing that every morning. And the, the reason that they, the, the reason that they don't um, realize that that's happening is if you think about what the model of a, the, the business model of the media companies is, it's this, if they show you news that gets more advert, you know, more eyeballs, then they make more money on advertising. Well, the things that the, the, the type of news that gets you the most eyeballs is most negative. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also a saying in media, if it bleeds, it leads, right? And so <laughs> yes. if it bleeds, it leads. <laughs> and so the business model of the, of the news companies is let's show you the most negative eye catching news that is possible because it gets the most viewers, which mm-hmm. gets the most advertising, which makes the most money. And so you are essentially being put in a negative emotional state by the news companies in order to make them more money, 
whether you believe it or not, or whether you like it or it's not. It's 100% true. 100% and true. So my solution for myself is just to simply, and, and this is very controversial, but I just simply don't look at the news. Yay! I don't. I don't. <laughs> I'm, oh my God. I didn't like when I t- tell that to people, they get very upset with me. Like I did something bad and I'm like, no, I just don't want to deal with this BS in my life. Like I'm not you here didn't to do something bad. You did something healthy. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, we're hi- we're high fiving you, Rob. We- Absolutely. <laughs> there we go. All right. I'm just so happy to hear that that resonated with you guys. Cause when I tell people that they're like, well, how do you find out about things that are important? And I'm like, you know what? You know what, what happens if something's super important? Someone tells me about it. Like, Absolutely. they tell me about it when I'm talking to them. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you a story that, that reinforces that. You yeah, can share yeah. this with, with anybody who brings that up. Okay. Now, this is pre internet. Okay. So back in the late 1980s, the wall fell over mm-hmm. in, in Eastern Europe, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was not watching the news. I didn't know about it. Wow. I didn't find out until a year later. No I way. I did not know because I was in a, a rural oh. location. I didn't have a whole lot of uh, social contact going on. I wasn't paying attention to the news. So all of my channels for getting there weren't there. And wow. do you know how much that actually upset or even you know turned around my life that I couldn't get that information? That much. Zero. Yeah. Zero. So anyone who says, well, you got to be in- informed, my answer is why? <laughs> why is that so frigging important i totally agree what were you gonna say Emery? i was talking about the news with somebody at work and i said i didn't watch it and i just sort of was like i'd rather create my own reality than watch what they want to feed me so that was kind of my answer to it it's just like i'll, I'll create my own news Ooh, i, just, I, I, I love that I love that how you frame that. I want to create my own reality, not live in someone else's. That's really cool. Yeah, because you know it's all doom and gloom, and there's nothing shocking because everything's breaking news and everything's doom and gloom. Um, I'd rather just go and watch something positive on on anywhere or read a book. Yes, yes. So it's now, totally I just, my, my husband watches it. He's really like his general knowledge is amazing, and I'll just go, okay, so what's happening here? Oh, okay, great, thanks. <laughs> Cur- curated news source right there. <laughs> yeah. I'm a need to know basis. <laughs> yeah, I, I I understand the viewpoint of somebody who says that you you got to stay informed. You got you got to know. I think part of what they don't understand about their own viewpoint is why they have it. Hmm. They probably believe that they have it because they think they need it in order to function throughout their day. What they don't realize is that the truth of that, it is true to an extent, just not the way they think it is. It's true because they need their daily dose of negativity in order to feel like they're in their comfort zone. They're, they're looking for that in order to stay in a place that is very familiar to them. Because that when you get outside of that familiar comfort zone, then all the craziness starts to happen. So the real motivation, I believe, behind this whole idea that, well, you got to stay informed is to stay in that comfort zone. That's super interesting. I had not thought about that. Huh. I really like that. You know, it's it's interesting to me that um, if you look at, you know, I, my wife and I had COVID before the vaccinations even came out. And so this was like a year and a half ago or something. And um, 
you know, one of the, like, you know, they've done all these studies of COVID, like, hey, what are the things that, you know, like, here's the effects of COVID, right? But what I found interesting is one of the, one of the effects of COVID after you get it is higher anxiety. Mm-hmm. Well, I've thought about this. Why do you think, why do you think there's higher anxiety? Well, gee, every news outlet for like two years basically pounded into your head that this, you get this thing and it's like the worst thing ever. And again, I'm not, I mean, obviously I don't wish that anyone gets COVID, but the point is, is like, if, 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 if you listen to hundreds or thousands of messages about anything, whether it's a teddy bear or COVID or, a, uh, you know, something else that is negative, of course, you're going to have all these negative, uh, you know, stigmas or like mindsets related to that. That's not a surprise at all to me. And so I think it sounds sort of, again, sort of like a crazy viewpoint, but I think that the media and the news outlets have essentially created this anxiety in people who have gotten COVID. I think there's a lot of truth. I don't think I would put the onus just there. I think it actually belongs in a number of different places because like we were saying before, we human beings are attuned to negativity. uh, I don't remember who was on the show recently. Uh, A guest was on who made the point that a study was done showing that 80% of our thoughts every day are negative. Yes, I've average. seen that as well. Yep. Yeah. Well, well, that, that, that's not just the media. That, I mean, there, media is certainly a major influence. I'm not going to say that it's not, but it takes a lot more than media for that to happen because media is reacting. Re- media isn't saying, let's go out there and make everybody negative. They're just saying, let's sell advertising. And that's what we find sells the advertising to. So, you know, there, is it, is the media responsible for how people are, are responding big? But, well, but he, he, no, it's, get, I get it. Well, I'm, I, th- that very highly resonates. So here's, again, here's the ant, here's the part of the equation that people aren't getting. So in America before COVID, and again, so you can't say COVID affected this. We spend 12 hours and 21 minutes per day on average in front of screens and media, mm-hmm. three quarters of our waking lives. Yeah. And so, and, and if you look at the, how we use media during, how we use screens and media during that time, again, roughly, uh, four hours is, email, uh, roughly two hours of social media, roughly one hours is traditional media, like, uh, you know, news. So that right there is seven hours a day. And all those are super highly negative. And, you know, 50 I mean, years it, ago, the, the none of those even existed. adding up, right? I mean, it's just like you, you, you lay it out like that. Like, oh, my God, it's so clear. Here's where it's all coming from, right? This is That's, where we're giving our attention to in a massive, it. massive way. This is, and this is, this is like, I just feel like, I feel like I, when I describe this to people, like you, you guys are very, uh, I really appreciate your guys' open-mindedness with my, you know, viewpoint. Cause again, I don't think that all of this is, <laughs> you know, we're very, is always well received by people, but sometimes I just feel like I'm in the, the crazy zone or something because I, 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 I feel like I'm seeing this pretty clearly and I'm like doing all the work and the research and, and, but I guess people, um, I don't know if they don't think it's a problem or whatever, but I, I'm not sure that they believe that it's affecting it as much as them as they, as, as it really is. I think it's affecting virtually everyone. It's just to what extent and to what degree. Well, let me reassure you. First of all, you're not in the crazy zone. You're in the sane zone. <laughs> so I, I just want to lay that out. Okay? I'm glad to hear that. We, we need to Definitely. clarify which category we're talking about here. But, but the second thing I want to point out is that I, I honestly, I, I get where, people are coming from in, in terms of how they're responding when, when, when they're responding that way. One of the themes that has come up almost every single interview, I, I say almost just be careful to, just in case there's one I'm forgetting about, but almost every single interview that I've ever done here on the show, 
actually I can think of one and I didn't publish it now that I think about it, but it's the only one I can think of. All the rest of them are about stories about people who have had a major crash and burn and a flight of, you know, a flight of the Phoenix after that coming out of the ashes. Wow. And what that tells me is you have to have some kind of a crash before you finally are willing to sit up and say, wait a minute, something's got to shift here. What is it that I need to shift? So the mm-hmm. answer for, you know, why is it that people are so tied into paying attention to all this negativity without thinking that it's a problem? It's because they haven't crashed. Uh... The crash has to happen. Once the crash happens, it's like, oh, my God, what just happened? How do I deal with this crazy situation I'm in? How did I even get here? And now, all of a sudden, you're open to the idea of, well, geez, maybe I put myself there. I, that's a great perspective. I appreciate you for sharing that. Um, and that, you know, that's I, it's interesting to think about that. So, you know, I think, um, unfortunately, I think that it's going to be it's going to take a lot more time for a lot of people to crash. Because if you look at what's happening, I mean, it's not like people went from, oh, one year I spent 20 minutes on social media day to the next year I spent three hours. Like that has been kind of a gradual change over the last 10, 15, 20 years for a lot of people. And so like they don't, they didn't, because it's been gradual en- enough, I guess, that, you know, they're, the average person isn't like saying to themselves, oh, like I feel way worse than I did 10 years ago because they're not thinking to compare themselves to 10 years ago, but they do feel materially worse than 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, I, I, I totally, uh, your point really resonates with me. I, I guess I'm just, I'm like wondering what is, what is the average person's crash need to be in order for them to, to, to wake up to this, uh, you know, this stuff that's happening to them. I don't really, I don't have the answer to that. I'm just, well, well you pointed to one. I mean, a moment ago, you mentioned the pandemic. That was a crash for the vast majority of the population around the world. And look at some of the things that came out of that crash. One of the first things that came out of it was people realized, oh, my God, I can't be in contact with my family unless they live in the same house that I live in. And even then, I have to be careful about it. And all of a sudden, the value of virtual communication on the Internet took on a massive new meaning. Zoom took off like crazy. Zoom just became like the biggest company in the world because of the pandemic, because everybody said, wow, I never, I kept taking it for granted, all this, this connectivity I had. Now that I'm missing the connectivity, wow, do I value it? I value mm-hmm. it in a way that I never valued it before. Yeah. And what is what among the many things it has led to? It led to appreciation of service workers. It led to the great resignation. Great resignation accomplished what Congress couldn't accomplish. It changed the minimum wage mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because people said, hey, screw this. I am so much happier working at home. Why would I want to go back to an office? And suddenly the whole demographic shifted. The whole thing. Yep. Yep. I so do the think answer it's... to your question is that's, that's what it takes. It takes a crash like that. That was a crash that everybody experienced. Mm. Yeah, I suppose I didn't really think about it that way. That totally makes sense. I love that. Yeah. Point. I love that point. You know, there's a lot of great stuff. I mean, certainly we had a lot of death and, and illness and so forth that came out of the pandemic. But beyond that, a lot of good stuff has come out that mm-hmm. a lot of people haven't really come to yeah. terms with yet, but it's really there. I, I view the pandemic. I mean, obviously, I didn't lose anybody or anything like that. But I, I look back and look at the opportunities it gave me. Mm-hmm. And now I'm able to do hybrid working. So I can go into the office for a couple of days a week. And I can also work from home and I, it's half term here, which is like a school holiday. So I take a few days off for the last couple of days I'll work and the kids will be home. I can do that now. I've got choice. 
Yes. And, you know, I was able to develop myself over the pandemic. So I, I view it as a, it was a certainly a, a, gave me a lot of food for thought on how I wanted to go forward with my life. Mm-hmm. Love that. Yeah. And I, I do think it was a, it was, um, you know, what I can consistently hear from people is it was a time to kind of reevaluate everything, mm-hmm. you know, reevaluate Absolutely. your whole, every, every facet of your life and make a, and make a change, which I, I think we kind of needed that. So I, I do, I was grateful for that as well. I love the creativity that came out. I mean, people couldn't do birthday parties, so they came up with really inventive ways to celebrate people's birthdays. I mean, like, wow, that was so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or like uh, a lot of those, you know, streaming concerts and stuff, you know, people mm-hmm. would do the stuff like that. And, yep. um, you know, definitely a cool way to, to try something different like that. Look, look how many people did something positive in a negative event. Yeah. True. Yes. Yeah. Because they had the time and space to do it. And the inclination, that's, I think the inclination is bigger. Mm-hmm. What were you going to say, Emery? I was just going to say, you know, I was just literally thinking out loud, really, that it's nice to look back at the pandemic and think, yeah, actually, I got a lot from that. And it was positive because actually at the very beginning, it was really hard working, mm-hmm. homeschooling, not seeing my friends and that whole adjustment and the whole life change. It was really hard. But actually, to, it's just nice to actually, a few years later, just look back and go, yeah, he survived. It was all right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's empowering. What, what, what a perspective shift that is. Yeah. Yeah. Really big. It's nice. Really, really mm-hmm. big. Yeah. Very powerful, too. Hey, Rob, this has been a great conversation, and we really appreciate you coming onto the show and sharing your insights. Your, your insights, are, are they're 100% in alignment with what we talk about. So you don't have to worry about us here. We, we love what you're talking about. And anyone who gives you a hard time, just send them to us. We'll take care. <laughs> well, thank you. Guys. Thank you. I'm really glad uh, that, yeah, that we could chat, and this was super fun. I really, really enjoyed this and really grateful for the opportunity. Thank you so much. How do people find thank out you. more about what you're offering? I mean, is there a way they can reach out and contact you or? Yeah, absolutely. So you can reach me at Humans First on my website. It's just humansfirst.us. And then one other thing that I wanted to offer the listeners of the show is a free 30-minute technology mindfulness consultation call with me. All you need to do to redeem that is just email me. My email address is rob, R-O-B, at humansfirst.us. Just email me there and mention this show in the subject line, and then I will set up a free 30-minute call to see how I can help you with your technology mindfulness. Excellent. I'll make sure that we get the uh, links for that in the show notes so that I can get it easily. That's Thank really great. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. And one more thing I got to tell you that I make it a practice to tell all my guests, and this certainly applies to you. There are many people, including listeners of the show, but also listeners of other podcasts and maybe readers of articles you've written or whatever, who have been influenced by what you've been doing and saying for the better. You'll never hear from them. You'll never see them. You'll never know exactly what happened. But you have helped many people that you don't know about. So I like you to make, make it a practice to say on their behalf, thank you for what you have done and for what you're continuing to do because you're making a big difference. Thank you. I really appreciate hearing that. That, that means a lot. And we appreciate but, you very much. And I appreciate you, Amory, as usual. I'm looking forward to likewise, continuing, well. <laughs> continuing this uh, wonderful collaboration we've got. Of course, we'll have Louie back next week. And I also appreciate our listeners everywhere. We will see you all next time here on LOA Today. Goodbye, everybody.